Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Beautiful word from uh, John chapter 20, verses 24 to 29. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in my hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Amen. Between 4.6 and 4.0 billion years ago, there was probably no life on the earth. The planet's surface was at first this molten, and even as it cooled, it was getting pulverized by asteroids and comets. And all that existed were these simple chemicals, these carbon organisms. But about 3.8 billion years ago, the bombardment stopped. The asteroids stopped colliding with the surface of the Earth, and life arose. Most scientists think that the last universal common ancestor, the creature from which everything on the planet descends, appeared about 3.6 billion years ago. And this began a long process, a process of evolution, a process that brings us today, 3.6 billion years later, to being the kind of people who think and reason and feel and try to do things for their kids and drive cars. That's one story. And that story takes a lot of faith to believe. Now, I want to tell you a different story. The Jesus, the Christian story. Joanna, you can put those up on the screen. We'll follow that. The Christian story. Some time off in the past, God created a world of goodness Humanity rejected their call to partner with God in relationally stewarding the goodness of this good world that God had made. So God speaks a world into existence. We've spent a lot of time on this. And then out of that moment, Jesus or God invites people to be alongside of him. And they forsake that call. They do their own way. But in the midst of that, God doesn't give up. Instead, he chooses a people to not only set the world right to but to make it anew in his image. And we see this as he approaches Abraham in Genesis 15. We see this as he appears to the people who have just left Egypt in Exodus chapter 20. And through a long and winding narrative, eventually God himself, as John says, the word becomes flesh, shows up within the world. So God, though he is over the world, though he is bigger than it, shows up within it. As Jesus of Nazareth is born in Bethlehem some 2,000 years ago. The story doesn't end there. You can go to the next slide, Joe. 
Now, Jesus came not only to live among us, but to die. And he says things like, I'm going to die for your sins on our behalf. He shows us God's love by his teachings, by his words, but not just his words. He's not just a teacher. Everything that he does is embodying this thing that he refers to as the kingdom of God. As he lives his life for a mere 33, something like that, years, He's crucified on a Roman cross, delivered over to them by the religious authorities of his day. So Jesus, if he's a king, is a failed king. And on the third day, this Christian story proclaims that Jesus rises again from the dead. Jesus' resurrection means that he's king over all the earth, and the project of redeeming all of creation, that thing that he started back in Genesis 1, that thing that kind of took a detour in Genesis 3, has now been renewed, and that Jesus appearing to us shows us the pattern of all of life. And the church, this gathering of people in local contexts all around the world, places like middle schools in Princeton, places like, like mere shacks, in villages in Haiti, places like large cathedrals in Europe, the church is invited to partner with God in that project. Now, one day the world, as we look to the future, will be completely harmonized under the reign and the love of God, which will go on into eternity. Two stories, two stories about life, about where it all came from, two stories about what it all means. And honestly, for that one too, I'm going to be honest, it takes a lot to believe that one, right? Any of you who have been following after Jesus, like when you really lay it out, you're like, you follow a man who 2,000 years ago was crucified, and then he got out of the grave three days later He was resurrected. One thing we know in our society, in our culture, is that dead people tend to stay dead, right? You drive by the graveyard, you're not like waiting with bated breath like, ooh, is the zombie apocalypse going to start? And so there's an equal amount of faith extended. And so what I want to do today is simply to talk about the things that affect us all. See, we're in a vision series here at Ecclesia, just kind of describing and detailing the kinds of people that we think God is calling us to be. And we have five values that we're kind of walking through. Joe, you can put that slide up as well. They used to be a lot longer. I like to be creative and tell people, you know, like have this like really, you know, original way. And my wife was like, hey, if you shorten those, people could actually remember them. And... uh, Turns out she's very wise and smart, so here we are. So we started with this simple notion that words, as it did in the beginning, when God speaks the world into existence, words create worlds. And so we want to be a people who put all of our faith in the Word of God, that it is sufficient for us. And then last week we talked about what is a life, what is a church that is living in the reality of God's Spirit looks like. And then today, we want to focus in on our minds. We are in the confines of Princeton University, one of the greatest bastions of academic excellence in in all of the world. Like, people just come to Princeton to visit the campus, right? Like, and if you guys live here, you're like, hey, I mean, it's cool and all, but people travel thousands of miles to come and take tours here. And so we want to talk about what does it look like for us 
to be a people who are intellectually honest, to be a people who are probing the deep things of God and are asking the questions that sort of give us pause. And so this morning, I want to tell you the truest two things about you. First of all, you were all born. Congratulations. I don't know what you did to achieve that, but everybody gets a trophy in this one, right? You were all here right now. And unless this is some sort of multiverse where you don't actually exist, I'm here to tell you you exist. I'm looking at you. You're real. You were all born. You all appeared, no matter what your story was, no matter how hard it was, no matter what's happened to you, you are here. You're alive. That's one thing. Here's the second thing. You're going to die. Welcome to church. We're so glad you're here. It is true of every one of us that we're going to die. The psychologist Stephen Cave talks about how we confront this fact that we're going to die. We want to look at a couple of his ideas as we begin to explore the story. So we started with this big cosmic story that says 3.6 billion years ago, the world suddenly became finely tuned enough, just far enough away from the sun, just tilted on its axis, just at the right rate that life could emerge. And in that story, it suggests that there is no, no God, no mover, no author behind the story. It just happened. And if you follow that to its conclusion, then I'm also here to tell you that your life is meaningless. Because if you're an accident, if you emerge from nothing, then what does it all mean? Philosophers throughout the history of the world have faced this conclusion, have come to this juncture in their thinking, and basically said, nothing. The philosopher Frederick Nietzsche was known for something called nihilism, which basically means nothing matters. Now, I could get down much more with the philosopher Epicurus, who saw this. He said, yeah, it all doesn't really matter, but here's what you should do. In light of that impending doom, have as much fun as you can in the here and now. Like, at least he took a, shall we say, like a sunny approach to this problem. So Stephen Cave is a psychologist, and he talks about our ways of confronting death. And so we want to look at the way that Stephen Cave outlines it, and then we want to look at the way that Jesus confronts his own death. And all the while, friends, if you're here and you're saying, yeah, I, I can at least have faith in that four point billion years ago accidental story because science is giving me something solid to hold on. If you're here and that's you, I'm so glad you're here. Welcome. Because when we're talking about which one of these stories is true, which one of these stories, this Christian story that we look through, or which uh, this, this sort of accidental emergent story, it might be both. But we're going to look today. Stephen Cave says we have our ways of confronting death. He calls them terror management stories. He says that basically at some point we all realize this fundamental truth that we're going to die. And then we have to do something about it. And he lists four that are kind of commonplace amongst the societies of the world. The first one, he calls the elixir, the fountain of youth. Science and technology will solve this. The alchemists spent years trying to turn these base metals into gold. 
The creams that you put on your face are going to keep you young. Stem cells. You know, I, I heard that Simon Cowell has young men's blood pumped through his body. <laughs> That's strange. <laughs> like, and it's like nobody's ever seen a horror movie, right? It's like, that's how these things start, right? And so Stephen Cave says the first way that we try to manage our terror at our impending doom is through this elixir mentality, that something has to come in and fix it. The second one is the resurrection story. And this, this story, most of the faiths of the world fit into this, uh, this section here, the religious stories that we tell ourselves. Now, if you look at the religious stories and what they say about the future, quite frankly, friends, they are quite different. The Jesus story is quite different from that of the Buddhist story. The Buddhist story says that you will dissolve into the nothingness of the world, that you will be absorbed into the ongoing cycles of the universe. Jesus says you're going to be fully resurrected as yourself. You're going to be fully redeemed as yourself. You see the difference here. There's this deeply impersonal element to the Buddhist story. And there's this deeply personal element to the Christian story. And so Stephen Cave says that we tell ourselves resurrection stories. And today we see uh, this in the field of the sciences, things like cryogenics. Uh, things that, you know, you'll freeze your body until they've basically solved death and then they'll unfreeze you. This is a great gig if you can get it, if you have the kind of money to afford yourself to be able to be uh, cryogenically frozen. I'd love to talk to you afterward. I've got a lot of hungry people right now that we'd love to help you feed. Stephen Cave goes on. He talks about the soul story. Essentially that you will leave your body behind. I love that Stephen Cave makes a difference between the resurrection story and the soul story. The soul story is that your life is essentially spirit and that your spirit is the truest thing about you and that it will survive on into eternity. Now, in our scientific, technocratic world, we have come up with a new way of describing this, that you can upload your consciousness to the cloud, right? And so you can take your brain and you know, put it on Amazon's cloud drive and you know, 2,000 years off into the future, you will still exist and the world will be better for it. Am I right? The last section that Stephen Cave talks about, the last story of terror management that we tell ourselves, is the legacy story. This is so, so prevalent in our culture. The fame story. Like, how easy is it to become famous these days? Like, YouTube has a whole segment of famous people that most of us, because of your age, you don't even know they exist. But millions upon millions of kids watch them open toys every day or play video games. And guys, you can hate on it all you want. They are making bank. Fame is something that attracts us. It says that you can leave a legacy, that your life can be bigger than the bounds of your, just, your finite existence. Also within this legacy story, the idea of having a family. Right? And so you see how in all of these, they're not inherently bad, but they're ways that we try to manage this impending terror, this, this thing that tells us that we are going to die. Stephen Cave says, you can put that quote up there, Joe. He says, We have to live in the knowledge that one day the worst thing that can happen to us surely will. The end of all our projects, our hopes and dreams, our individual world, we each live in the shadow of our own personal apocalypse. I, I want to buy Stephen Cave an ice cream cone. 
So this is the way Stephen Cave suggests that we have of confronting death. Now let's look. I want to look at a story where Jesus is staring down his own impending doom. We, we find this in John chapter 18. So if you have a Bible, you can turn over there with us. John chapter 18, verse 33. It says, Pilate then went back inside the palace. He summoned Jesus and asked him, are you the king of the Jews? You see, Jesus has been handed over to Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is the ruling authority in the region where Jesus lived. He is the representative of the Roman government. He has the power in this, in this scenario. And he confronts Jesus, and he asks him a question. He says, are you the king of the Jews? Because this is what Jesus has been accused of. Now, you have to understand, too, Pilate is a representative of the Roman Empire. There's only one king. Caesar is king. Anybody else claiming to be a king is a usurper and a rebel. And so Pilate's asking him, hey, is it true what they're saying about you? The reasons they've handed you over to me, are they true? And Jesus answers him in verse 34. He says, is that your own idea or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? And Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, and this is important, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest. But now my kingdom is from another place. So Jesus is saying, look, if I was trying to take your seat, if I was trying to take Rome, we would start a rebellion just like the so, so many others that you have seen. But look, I'm all alone standing in front of you. Pilate answers him. He says, you are a king then. And Jesus answered, you say I'm a king. Jesus is brilliant. <laughs> so you see how the question starts? Are you a king? And then by the end of the conversation, Pilate's like, you are a king. Jesus is like, you said that, not me. And he says, in fact, the reason I was born and the reason I came into this world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of the truth listens to me. And Pilate retorted, what is truth? As the story progresses, Pilate then reapproaches Jesus in, in chapter 19, and he's, he approaches him in, in verse 9. He says, where are you from? But Jesus gives him no answer. Pilate therefore says to him, do you refuse to speak to me? Do you not know that I have power to release you and power to crucify you? And Jesus says in response to him, he says, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. So Pilate is trying to engage Jesus in this debate. And Pilate is holding all the power. He's saying, look, in this scenario, Jesus, no matter who you are, I can kill you. And Jesus seems largely uninterested in the conversation. Now, you might be able to envision how you would be in this, in this kind of scenario, right? Like somebody is interrogating you. They have the power to execute you. You probably would play a little ball, right? You'd probably have something to say and meet them where they are. But Jesus is so disinterested in this conversation. He doesn't feel the need to fight. He doesn't feel the need to offer an argument as to why he really is the king of the Jews, the son of God. In the face of Jesus' own death, he doesn't offer irrefutable arguments. Jesus could do some amazing magic tricks. Jesus could do some incredible miracles. 
Like, think, in this moment, all Jesus had to do was, like, you know, I don't know, open his hand, put some, you know, like a fireball in his hand, be like, hey, check this out. Ever see that before? Pretty cool, right? Jesus could have done, like, one of those deep dives on Pilate's life. Hey, like, hey, remember when you were 11 and you liked that girl and she didn't like you back? You wrote her a note in Latin. She spoke Greek. Jesus could have done all of these things, but that's not what he does. He doesn't offer irrefutable proof. And we're going to see what he does in just a moment. So the question we have today is we're sort of exploring these things. What argument would persuade you? What argument would persuade us beyond any shadow of a doubt that Jesus is who he says he is? What do you need to see? And friends, I don't ask this to you. I don't ask this to you like with, with like trying to convict you. I don't ask this to you trying to make you feel bad. I think it's a really reasonable question, right? Like why does Jesus make faith so hard? Like think about what he does upon his resurrection. Like if you read the gospel stories, Jesus never, like if, if, if he would have raised from the dead, and if he would have gone to the temple mount, or if he would have gone to Rome and shown up in the clouds and said, hey, Roman Empire, I am God. You crucified me. I came back to life. You probably should get the memo. But Jesus never does this. Like, you think that story would still be told? Hey, there was this one time in Rome where the sky parted and God himself showed up and waved to everybody. Like, that would still be told to this day. But Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, what he does is, is so much in line with exactly the way that he lived his life. Jesus goes to his friends. In Luke's gospel, we see Jesus walking with two disciples. And the, the best part about Luke's gospel story is they're telling Jesus everything that's happened to him. They're like, oh, yeah, we had this friend Jesus. They don't recognize Jesus at this point. And he was crucified. We thought he was the Messiah. We thought he was the king of the Jews, but it turns out he's probably not. And Jesus is just like, uh-huh. It's really sad. I'm sorry to hear that. But he walks with them, a day's walk from Jerusalem, and he sits down with them, and he opens their eyes. He sits down to a table with them. And in John's gospel, Dave read this story for us of what Jesus does in response to our doubts, in response to our questions, because I think it's a really reasonable question. Why is faith so hard? And if we're going to be a church who's honest about our own space, or honest about our own doubts, I think we have to start there. Because, yeah, I have some trouble believing the story of the world that says you're all an accident. Because I, I had this unshakable conviction that my life matters. I had this unshakable conviction that the things that I do, the things that I even feel and think, have some sort of resonance with the larger world, that they're not just an accident of processes. Perhaps, as Jesus, as he's faced with this question... Help us. Help us to see. Help us to know what you are, who you are. In response to that, Jesus doesn't present us with irrefutable arguments, but he presents us with an irrefutable person. Look in John chapter 20, starting at verse 24, the, the text that Dave read for us. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless... 
Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Joe, can you put that uh, painting up? This is a Caravaggio. <laughs> it's kind of a funny picture. They're like, ooh, that looked like it hurt. But friends, if this is you, if you're wired this way, I think this Thomas story is so incredibly beautiful. And we'll see just for reasons that will become clear in a moment. But Jesus doesn't, he doesn't condemn Thomas. He doesn't say, no, 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 you don't get that kind of proof. He says, look. Thomas is demanding. He wants a sign. He wants, he wants something that he can stand on. And for many of you, you're wired this way. Like, you need evidence. You need something that you can point to, right? And so Thomas, he says, unless I can put my hands where his nails, where the nails were, I will not believe. The text goes on, verse 26. <coughs> a week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them which is just always funny. Doors are locked. Hello, Jesus. How'd you get in here? Peace be with you, he says. And guys, this is an aside, but the first word that heaven has to say to earth, don't be afraid. Peace be with you. This is what Jesus has to say as he comes and stands among them. It says, then Jesus said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas then said to him, my Lord and my God. Friends, this is incredibly beautiful because Thomas, he needs that extra bit of proof. He needs to see something. And what does Jesus present him? He doesn't say, hey, look, Thomas, this is why all of this had to happen. What he does is he comes and he stands in his midst. When Thomas wants an irrefutable argument, Jesus gives him an irrefutable person. And to Thomas's question, Jesus responds with himself, with his life. And Thomas is the first one in the Gospel of John to respond with this incredible sense of worship and, and reverence, my Lord and my God. And so as a church, as Ecclesia, as we're being formed into the people that God has called us to be, a commitment to being a people who, who deal honestly with the things of our minds, to, to, to commit to intellectual honesty, but also to walking alongside skeptics. I think we have to be a kind of people shaped by a couple of different things. First of all, we see in the text, the disciples say to Thomas when he's not there, they say, we have seen the Lord. And friends, for us, our truth our grasp on reality, our sense of self-worth and purpose and, and, and direction in this life is all based upon this, that we have seen Jesus. That when we want those irrefutable arguments, Jesus has come to us irrefutably, that we have seen him. And so first of all, we have to be a people who pursue his presence, who become like him by being near to him. But second, we have to meet people in their doubts. And this is what Jesus does for Thomas, right? And guys, this is why I'm so excited about this Alpha course that's coming. Friends, if, you have, uh, if you're here this morning and you're just saying, yeah, I mean, you're kind of, your story, your version of the story is always going to be slanted. That's true. I am a proclaimer of the resurrection of Jesus. But if you're saying, I, I still don't buy it, 
I still don't buy that God somehow did this incredible thing in the middle of history and that it has anything to do with my life now. C.S. Lewis talks about this, right? He says he always struggled with the idea of Jesus as an example. He's like, what does somebody's death, even if it was a very noble death 2,000 years ago, have anything to do with my life right now? And friends, if that's you, Alpha is for you. It's a conversation about really the deepest questions that we can ask as humans in the face of the fact that we are all here. And so we're asking, why are we here? What does it all mean? But also that we're all going to die. That we'll also all, as Stephen Cave says, face this personal apocalypse. And so friends, I want to just extend that invitation. We're going to start a week from Wednesday. And there's a sign-up sheet in the back. It is so integral to who we are as Ecclesia because what it does is it enables us to walk alongside people in their doubts. And friends, I have to say so often, I just, I don't really feel the need to answer people's doubts. Most people's doubts are, are fairly answerable through, through a course of like history and philosophy. Like the Jesus thing is quite beautiful. But oftentimes people just need to be heard and listened to. Where do you have in your life that you can go and talk about the meaning of life? And Alpha is designed for that. It's also, it's got like the best, you know, like wine and food and cheese and so, hey, worst case scenario, you get a good meal out of the deal. But church, we have to be a people, ecclesia, who walk alongside those in their doubts. Because so often we think of people that are, we, we sort of conceive of two groups, like an in and an out group. But for those of us who have been walking with Jesus, walking in the way of Jesus for a long time, how many of us know that struggle where the things that we thought were so clear, the things that we thought we believed so wholeheartedly now become in question? The thing that we had built our faith on, we realize maybe it's not as sure and steady as we had at first thought. So doubting is not just for those who don't, who don't follow Jesus. Doubting is something that's a part of our life and our walk with Jesus. Often it's him who leads us into these spaces because he's trying to bring us into a deeper and a more vibrant life with him. And so we have to be a people who are willing to walk alongside those and their doubts. The third thing, present the nail-scarred hands of Jesus to the world. In the face of people asking Jesus the question, tell me who you are, Jesus doesn't offer an irrefutable argument. He offers an irrefutable person. Think about the people that you know in your life that don't care anything for Jesus. Most of them would say, he's a nice guy. Like it's a pretty rare opinion to be like, yeah, Jesus, I don't know, a little shady, right? Like healing blind people, however he was doing that, I don't know. Is that really what we want to be doing? Feeding the poor, honoring and dignifying them. Like most people have a sense of Jesus that they're, they're like, even if he's just a, you know, a nice man, a good teacher, they feel good about him, right? So Jesus presents this irrefutable person. And church, as a community of people who live under the reign of the resurrected Christ, this is our call, to go to the places where the nails and the scars are, to be people who present the person of Jesus. This is our call as people to live in his way. The, the ancient church father, Justin Martyr, said, we don't speak great things, we live them. And so our call is to present this irrefutable person of Jesus in all his beauty to the world. This is how we begin to live intellectually honest and true lives. Now, Stephen Cave also talks about, 
He, he references a study uh, recently where two groups of agnostics, so people who aren't sure if God is real, people who aren't sure if there's a God, so they're, you know, they're kind of like, I don't know. Maybe there, maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Now, the first group was told to think about being dead, which is a cheery thought, right? The second group was told to think about being lonely. A little less cheery, but not so bad. And at the conclusion of the study, the agnostic group told to ponder their own death was much more likely to believe stories about God and eternal life. And what Stephen Cave is describing here is that this is the, the implicit definition of a bias. Like, this is what a bias is, a psychological bias. If you're, if you're reminded of your own death, and then you're told a story about Jesus, how he can save you from death, you're a little bit more inclined to believe that. And so, friends, as we wrap up here this morning, I want to tell you this morning, I'm not trying to bias you to believe in Jesus. I'm not trying to give you this, like, oh, this, like, you woke up this morning, the sun is shining beautifully, you come into church, and you're told, I'm going to die. Oh, thanks for that. Thanks, man. I guess, I'll, I guess I'll go along with what you're saying. I remember when I was in high school, a friend of mine brought me to a, like a Wednesday night church meeting. And what I didn't know, I had no idea what was going on. I was not a Christian then. I just thought, you know, well, you know this will be fun. I'll be with my friend. It's a different Wednesday night. We go into this church, and they are putting on this production. And it soon became very clear to me what this production was about. Are any of you familiar with the figure from the old Star Wars movies, Darth Maul? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Darth Maul was heavily featured in this production, though he was not named Darth Maul. His name was Satan. And so what would happen is this family would be going about their business. They'd be talking about the day that they were going to have tomorrow. They'd be about to get in the car, and there's this dramatic production being put on. Like, yes, let's go to dinner. They'd all get in the car, and then they would die in a fiery car wreck. And then it gets worse. Darth Maul would show up, a.k.a. Satan. And if they had not prayed a prayer or believed the right things, he would drag them off off stage, which apparently was hell. And then at the end of the night, they said, what if you died in a car wreck on the way home? And it turned out that I had driven there in a car. <laughs> and so I said, well, that's a very good question. I had not been pondering that till Darth Maul emerged from the depths and the void and began to uh, speak his curses. And so they said, hey, all you have to do is pray this prayer. You got an eternal get-out-of-jail-free card. And I was like, yeah, that's for me. And you know what happened? At least in my story. Two days later, I was doing whatever the heck I wanted. It didn't change my heart. And so, friends, as we talk about being intellectually honest, as we talk about asking the big questions of life, I'm not trying to appeal to death as some sort of harbinger that hangs over us all. What I'm trying to say is that this Jesus story, more than any other story that I've ever encountered, makes sense of the world to me. In the face of all the suffering in this world where the Kurdish people right now are undergoing incredible trauma and suffering. In the face of that, I see a Jesus, a God who suffered. A God who eternally has nail scars in his hands. 
And though I can't answer why do all these horrible things happen, I see that this Jesus story, for me, makes sense of it just a little bit. I see that this sense that I have that my life has a purpose, that there's more to to my existence than just the fact that I'm here and I'm breathing and that someday I will be not. I see that Jesus has said, you are made in my image. And not just you, but every single person. Every person you ever encounter has been blessed and bestowed upon as a child of God, this image of God. I see, and that makes sense to me. And friends, though I can't offer you this irrefutable argument this morning, what I can say is that Jesus has irreparably and irrevocably changed my life. And if that sounds like an appeal to your emotions, it is. Because when people wanted an irrefutable proof from Jesus, he said, here I am. Put your hands here. And friends, this morning... There are many compelling arguments for why Jesus is exactly who he says he is. But ultimately, it comes down to our faith. And for me, what I've seen of the world, this Jesus story makes life not only make sense, it makes it beautiful. And so I hope that as a people, that as we pursue these questions, as we see these intersections of science, as we see these intersections of philosophy, as we see the intersections of history with what we proclaim as our faith, I hope that we will, we will be people who can deal honestly with those questions, but also people at the end of the day who say, this Jesus story doesn't get much better than that. So where did you come from? What's going to happen to you? I don't know but I have a strong sense that you were made for a purpose, that your life has incredible significance because God has placed His image upon you, that if you find your life in Jesus, that it will never run out, it will never exhaust because He is the everlasting resurrected King, that your life now has significance and purpose and He's making sense of all the pain that you have endured and in the future He will redeem it all and all the beauty, all the longing that we feel. He's going to bring it under his beautiful reign. Let us pray. Beautiful Jesus. God, I, I just want to offer a prayer this morning for those who are, who are self-proclaimed skeptics. And I just want to, uh, the most overwhelming feeling that I pray that they feel is welcome. God, is welcome with their questions, welcome with their angst and their doubts. God, would you meet them there? Lord, would you help us to be a people who meet them there? God, for me, I, I, I feel so much of that, Lord. I'm prone to cynicism and skepticism, God. And Lord, I thank you for the ways that you're taking that and you're redeeming it and you're bringing me into uh, not only just a further understanding of who you are and what you've done, God, but a a further trust in you. Jesus, I pray for those of us who who want to keep you at arm's length, God, who want to keep you uh, at a surface level, Lord, that you're calling out to the deep places in us. God, that the deep places in you, the deepness in you, calls to the depths of our hearts and transforms us in the image of redeeming love. God, we thank you for this time. We thank you for this moment. Lord, we ask that you would be near to us. It's in your name we pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.